Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are in the book of Luke, the uh, third of the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're in Luke chapter 1, where we had finished in our last program, teaching portion of our last program, and we're talking about a a vision, a prophecy that um, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was given through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it's uh, helping us to understand this kingdom that we have been exploring the scriptures to understand about, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's point number three of our seven sets of prophetic terms that we're working our way through in preparation for our overview of all the prophetic events. That's our next teaching series. We're going to look at the prophetic events that the Bible says will take place between now and eternity which is, of course, the summation of all things as we go into eternity. All of God's plans for mankind to deal with sin will have been completed at the end of 7,000 years. And, of course, that seventh and last thousand-year period is the millennial kingdom, and that is um, very, very imminent because we're coming up on the end of 6,000 years since creation in the uh, first chapters of the book of Genesis. So, I don't know about you, but I'm excited. We don't know when that's going to be. We know that it kicks off with the rapture of the church, and the rapture of the church is a signless event. It's something that we are told and admonished in the Bible to eagerly await, to look forward to with great anticipation. In fact, the Bible even tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that there is a crown weighing for us when we see Jesus Christ face to face at his Bema seat which immediately follows the rapture of the church. And that that crown is simply for eagerly awaiting, eagerly anticipating his coming for his bride to take her to heaven. And, of course, that her (laughs) is us. We are the bride of Christ. So what we've been doing here is looking at the third set of prophetic terms and comparing and contrasting the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace, two different gospels, given to us by the same person, Jesus Christ, but they have two different uh, focuses, two different audiences, um, basically, and we'll explain that as we go forward. And the, the reason we're looking at the gospel of the kingdom first is because that's the first gospel that was given to the world, and I, I should say specifically to Israel, Uh, which was the focus. God's plan from the beginning was to take the good news to Israel, and then Israel would take it to the world. And of course, we know that that didn't happen the first time 2,000 years ago. But when Jesus came, he was in, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that he was. And of course, we've gone through these. If you've got your worksheet in front of you that you can download from the station, you can see that we have gone over the scriptures where it describes In the Old and the New Testament, we had scriptures for both, the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, the coming 
promised king and the conqueror. He would have been all of those things to first century Israel if first century Israel had simply believed him. And he came with a good news of the kingdom. I am the king that was promised. I'm here to set up the kingdom if you'll simply believe me. And now, after we've looked at the different descriptive terms for him from a biblical perspective, we then started looking at the kingdom offer itself. And a key thing to understand, and it'll be uh, made more evident as we go through these scriptures under gospel of the kingdom, that this is a promised earthly kingdom. This is a physical kingdom. This is not a spiritual kingdom. We'll talk spiritual kingdom when we move over to gospel of grace as a compare and contrast with this. But this is a physical promised kingdom that had been promised all through the Old Testament to Israel if they would simply accept the Messiah. And we've learned so far in our look at the kingdom that uh, from the Old Testament as well as New Testament passages that before the kingdom could be set up, um, they had to acknowledge who Jesus was. He would then bring about a tribulation period where he would make right all the wrongs. Remember at this time, 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire was the uh, ruling power in the world at that time. And of course, they ruled over Israel. And the promise was that he would remove that and make Israel the preeminent nation. Well, there had to be a period of tribulation that the, the Old Testament talks about, and we went over those scriptures. In fact, there can be a whole teaching series just on how the Old Testament handles the promised tribulation, that seven-year period talked about in Daniel that would uh, be the seven years of uh, basically torment on the earth. And at the end of that, there would be a judgment, and we've talked about that and we'll continue to talk about that. And then after the judgments, there would be this kingdom that would be set up on the earth. And we then find out that because Israel had rejected Jesus the first time, this kingdom is now going to be a thousand years long. Uh, We don't know, and there's no need to really speculate about it because it didn't happen. We don't know what it would have looked like um, extending forward if Israel had actually fully accepted Jesus the first time 2,000 years ago. About the only thing we can say for sure is there would not have been a church because there would have been no need for the cross. But again, we don't want to speculate on that, particularly here, because we have so many other things to talk about. But um, there was prophesied a kingdom, and that's what we're talking about. So we're in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and we were in um, verses um, 67 to 75. And this was a prophecy um, that the Holy Spirit, we see that in verse 67, where the Holy Spirit had come on Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, And he was given an illumination here, an inspiration, I should say, an inspiration to write this prophecy out. And it basically, uh, going down through verse 75, which we read last time, gave a uh, prophetic view of who this child, not John the Baptist, he's addressed down in verse 76 and forward. But from 67 to 75, it's talking about the promised Messiah in the line of David that would come. And we read through that, and it's a very clear um, description of him, uh, of Jesus and what he would do, particularly if they had accepted him the first time. And I want to, within this, uh, as we uh, look into this today, I wanted to take 
a few minutes and look specifically at two verses in this pronouncement uh, by Zacharias uh, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and those are verses 72 and 73. It gives us some Old Testament background, and it's here purposely because God wanted it here. He wants the reader. He wants you and me as well as Israel, frankly, at that time, if they had accepted him, some some good foundational scriptural background of uh, this whole prophecy of Jesus coming. And let, let's read uh, 72 and 73, and then we'll dig into it, because I want to go to several verses um, in the Old Testament. Verse 72, in talking about uh, this whole salvation that Jesus would bring, to show, verse 72 of Luke chapter 1, to show mercy toward our fathers. And, of course, we're talking about Israel, so these are the Israeli patriarchs. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And his here is not talking about the fathers. It's talking about God. And to remember his holy covenant. And then verse 73, the oath which he, again God, which he swore to Abraham, our father. So we see fathers in 72, and that's the uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so forth. Um, uh, Moses, just you can put a lot of those patriarchs in there. And then he gets very specific in verse 73 by referring to Abraham. And of course, Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish ethnic race. Um And we say Abraham, when we talk about the ethnic race of Israel, we go to his son Isaac when we talk about the spiritual aspect of it. The seed of promise would come through Isaac. Because remember, Abraham had a number of sons uh, by uh, two different wives, we're told in in Genesis, after Sarah died. So uh, Keturah became his second wife, and he had a number of other sons. So they're bearing, being very specific here. So what I wanted to do was take a few minutes and let's dig in to these two verses to give us some more foundational understanding of where this kingdom was coming from, who promised it, so forth. So first of all, in verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers. And let's go back into the Old Testament. So we want to keep our hand, if you will, or put a marker there in Luke chapter 1 because we're going to be coming back several times. Let's go to Micah. Now, if you go into the middle of your Bible, basically, you'll get into roughly Isaiah, and then you work your way to the right, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then you get to Daniel, and then you get into the Old Testament minor prophets, or what they're called, and you start out with Hosea, and then work your way through there past Joel and Amos, and you want to get to Micah. And if you've gone too far to Nahum, you back up to the left. And you want to go to uh, Micah, and we want to go to the last chapter of Micah. There's seven chapters in Micah. And Micah wrote about seven centuries before Jesus, seven centuries before Jesus. And it says in the very last verse of the last chapter of Micah, so basically the last thing that he taught when he prophesied to the southern kingdom prior to the... um, the Babylonian captivity, right at the end of the Assyrian capture of the 10 northern tribes. And he says in here in verse 20 of Micah 7, you, referring to God, you will give truth to Jacob 
And remember, we've always talked about this. When you see the word, the name Jacob, it almost always, and I'm saying that just because in case there is one (laughs) out there, but you can basically say just about always when you see the name Jacob, that it's Israel, meaning Israel, the 12 tribes. And remember, the 12 tribes have not been together as a single kingdom since the time of right after the death of Solomon. So in the 10th century, the 900s before Christ, 900 years before Christ, the kingdom split. But here he's talking about Jacob. So this is a prophetic looking looking into the distant future type of prophecy where he says he will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. So remember, Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and unchanging love to Abraham, which you, referring back to God, you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. So this is a very general promise that God would never forget Israel, that even though we're looking back, this is again seven centuries before Christ, it's referring all the way back to Abraham, which would have been 2,000 years before Christ. He's saying that all the promises that had been made uh, to the Israelite forefathers would be fulfilled, that your love would be unchanging and all of your truths would be manifested in Israel, uh, in the people of Israel at some point in time. So what a wonderful prophecy that is that has to do with showing mercy to our forefathers. And there we have Jacob and Abraham listed there in Micah chapter 7 to show you uh, what what uh, the Holy Spirit was telling us through Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. So let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Let's look at the next point. The next point, and if you look back at uh, 72, it says to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Covenant is one of the most important terms in the Bible particularly in the Old Testament, God promised to do things through covenants. And yes, God could just verbally promise something and it was as good as gold, so to say, so to speak. But he went a step further to, to make sure that men understood the seriousness of God when he made a promise to some, to some person, to some entity. And of course, here we're talking about Israel. And it was a very elaborate process where you took animals and killed them and cut them in half and walked between them. And there was a, a, a basically a promise of death if one of the parties backed out and uh, abrogated the covenant. So very, the point is it was very, very serious, and God promised things for Israel through covenants. So what I wanted to do was look at this. It says, and to remember his covenant, his holy covenant. So again, let's um, put your marker there in Luke chapter 1, and we want to go all the way back to the first book, the first book of the Bible, and that would be Genesis. And we want to go to Genesis 15, Genesis 15. And this actually gives you a, a visual description of what I was just talking about in terms of a covenant uh, that God made. In this particular case, this is a one-sided, what we call a unilateral covenant. 
Only one party is promising to do things here, and that one party significantly is God. It's not Abraham. So let's go again in Genesis chapter 15, and let's look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter 21. Reading in verse 17, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these two pieces. These two pieces were halves of an animal that had been slain. And remember, God prepared all this for Abraham. So this um, smoking oven and flaming torch passed between these two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. What God has done here is listed all the people groups that are living in this piece of land, which we know to be Canaan, and Canaan goes back way into antiquity before the Israelites ever showed up in the land in 1400 B.C., 1400 years before Christ. And these are all the people that are in Canaan that, as we learned from earlier in Genesis, had been cursed by God because of the sin of Ham. Remember, Ham had sinned not too long after they got off the ark, And the penalty of that sin on Ham was one of his sons would be cursed, and that son was Canaan. And we see that chronicled uh, earlier in Genesis. And these people groups came from that lineage of Ham through Canaan and so forth. Uh, Even though you see the Canaanite, these people were all associated with that particular geographic area. And just for a little bit of clarification, in verse 18, the river of Egypt uh, is, was not the Nile at that time, but there was actually a river that's no longer there that cuts from the Mediterranean kind of in a southeasterly direction through the Sinai Desert. So it would be just north of the, the Nile, um, and that was the southern demarcation. And then the northern demarcation was the great river, the river Euphrates, which of course runs up through Syria and through Iraq. And this particular portion of it would be up in that Syria-Iraq area. So that was the extent of the land that God had promised him in this wonderful unilateral covenant that we're talking about here. And we're going to expand on that in our next teaching portion when we're going to go to Genesis chapter 17 and look a little bit deeper into this particular holy covenant that we read about uh, as a foundation for the gospel of the kingdom. And again, we'll do that in our next program. But right now we want to transition over to our Q&A time, and we have been finishing up uh, with a rather extended review of the work of the triune Godhead in the lives of God's creation of man and woman since the garden, and now we're all the way into the uh, millennial, uh, the millennial kingdom. We've gone through the t- the period of the 
uh, church. The church has been raptured out. We've gone through the tribulation to see how the Holy Spirit worked in people's lives during the tribulation. It's very, it's very similar to how the Holy Spirit worked in people's lives in the Old Testament. And both of those, uh, you can basically say they're part of the gospel of the kingdom because Jesus came before the church was um, created, teaching the gospel of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit would come on people and would leave people depending on whether or not they were righteous or practicing iniquity. And then um, when the church came, the Holy Spirit would come on people purely through faith and would stay, would permanently indwell each member of the church. But when the church is raptured out in a yet future event, I believe it's the next event on the prophetic timeline, even though it's a signless event, we don't know when it'll happen, that whole manifestation of the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling someone will go back to heaven, and the old manifestation, if you will, of the Old Testament way in which the Holy Spirit worked with people will be reinstituted during the tribulation period, because the Bible clearly tells us that during the tribulation, when the focus is back on the nation of Israel, that the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus preached the first time, will be reoffered, reoffered to Israel. So that um, brings about a number of things from the Old Testament that will be reinstituted, not the least of which is how the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. But now we've gone through the um, tribulation period, and we're now talking about the wonderful promises that uh, God has made to Israel. And we were doing that in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, and we were there in our last program. So if you go back and grab the middle of your Bible again, and we do this, and I verbalize this uh, as many times as I can, because the more I do this, the more hopefully you get familiar with with where these books are in your Bible. And then once you get familiar with where the books are, then you start to get familiar with what's in these books. So that when we talk about a particular period in Israel's history or something to do with the church or something to do with yet prophetic future, you can say, oh yeah, I remember that's at the end of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, or that's in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, you know, so forth and so on. It just gets you familiar with the books. So we're looking for the book of Ezekiel, and that's uh, Isaiah and then Jeremiah and Lamentations, and then you get to Ezekiel, and we want to go to Ezekiel 36. And this is a wonderful prophecy of the love of God for Israel, and that's the point we're trying to make in here is the Israel is the wife of God. And the question was asked, does that have any impact on end-time prophecy? And yes, it does, because God's focus is going to be almost exclusively on Israel, which is, yes, his wife, is to bring her back into a full relationship with God. Remember, there was a, uh, actually, there was a divorce that talks, it's talked about in Jeremiah chapter 3 between God and the northern kingdoms, but they will all come back together again. You can basically say they're going to be remarried so that everything is back in perfect harmony. And in Ezekiel 36, we were looking at verses 22 to 38, basically to the end of the chapter. And uh, we, we read through that, and then we took some time. And what I want you to do, because we could spend weeks 
looking at just this particular passage and then the the uses of phrases in here, descriptive phrases, we could go out and be all over the Bible confirming and comparing uh, the different uh, phraseologies in here, but to show you that basically when Israel goes through the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, again, which is yet future, at the end of that tribulation, Israel is judged for their righteousness or their iniquity, and we found that in Ezekiel chapter 20. We went through those verses from 33 to 38 in a prior program, and there's one-third of those Jews that are judged will be judged as being righteous. And that one-third of those Jews will go into the millennial kingdom. And when I say go, they're going to stay on the earth. Remember the kingdom that was promised all through the Old Testament to Israel and that the Jew, the Israel, excuse me, the Gentiles would be beneficiaries of, not the primary focus, but, but beneficiaries of that Um, they will literally stay on the earth and then Jesus will bring about this amazing transformation of things on earth. And we could spend, again, many programs talking about what that's going to be like. Uh, People are going to live for hundreds of years. If you die at 100, you'll be um, considered a child. If you die at 100, people will live as long as the trees live that illness will be greatly diminished. Remember, Satan is going to be in the pit. Uh, away, uh, his influence will be greatly, greatly diminished during the millennial kingdom. Uh, believe it or not, we will no longer eat meat during the millennial kingdom. The Bible clearly tells us that as it was before the flood, people were vegetarians before the flood. We find that in Genesis, and it tells us very clearly in Isaiah in the latter chapters, that we will again, everybody, the animals and the humans, will all eat uh, vegetation, uh, the grasses and the fruits and so forth, and that there will be, uh, the children can play with deadly snakes if they want to, and nothing will happen. Uh, The lion will lay down with the lamb, and it'll be a glorious time. And at the center of all of this going on in the world will be the nation of Israel, or the house of of Israel, as it says in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. And it talks about how they will be humbled before the Lord. They will worship the Lord. They will know the Lord in full detail with their full heart, and he will be their God. And it talks about how all their sins are going to be forgiven and that their their heart will be sprinkled with clean water and all of the filthiness. And I'm just looking in here in verses 25. Uh, filthiness, and you will be cleansed of all your desires to worship idols and, th- and so forth, that you'll be given a heart of flesh that will replace your heart of stone, and that you will want, the whole purpose in your life will be to honor and to glory God. And that's what it's going to be like. In fact, that's what it's like for the church. And that, of course, will be fulfilled when we are in our glorified bodies, uh, first in heaven, and then we come back down on the earth during that thousand-year kingdom while these Jews and the and the um, Gentiles who make it through the tribulation and that are uh, judged as righteous, they're called the sheep in that sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25 that we've studied. They will be on the earth, and we will be ruling and reigning with Christ over them for that thousand-year period. But my focus is not on the church because the church is nowhere found here in Ezekiel 36. 
All of these wonderful promises that we read here are promised to Israel, to Israel and Israel alone. All right, we're going to finish up in our next program in our Q&A in Jeremiah. I want to finish up this uh, question and answer uh, that we're dealing with here in Jeremiah 31. So I look forward to doing that in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.